Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everybody, to New Books in Environmental Studies. I'm your host, Emma Shortis. Today, we're joined by Dr. Tim Neal to discuss his book, Wild Articulations, Environmentalism and Indigeneity in Northern Australia, which was published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2017. Wild Articulations examines the controversy over the 2005 Wild Rivers Act in the Cape York Peninsula of Northern Australia. Through detailed analysis of the role of traditional owners, prime ministers, politicians, the media, environmentalists, mining companies, the late Steve Irwin, crocodiles, and even river systems, the book reveals the ways in which the future of the North was contested. In the process, Wild Articulations reveals the overlapping, contesting, and sometimes surprising relationships between environmentalism, indigeneity, and development. And it shows how the Act both revealed and fundamentally altered the politics of environmentalism and indigeneity in Northern Australia. Dr Neil is a research fellow at Deakin University's Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation in Melbourne, Australia, which is where he joins us from now. And welcome, Tim, to the new Books Network. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So, Tim, I wonder if you might begin today's podcast just by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to a research focus that bridges this gap between human geography and cultural anthropology. Uh, well, I was um, finishing a master's in Auckland University. I'm from Aotearoa, New Zealand, and decided that I drastically needed to shift my research focus. I'd become very interested in uh, what you might call historical geography of uh, place through reading people like Jeff Park and Barry Barclay. I've become very interested in kind of how we produce um, national parks, how we produce kind of spaces of what we encounter as nature. Um, but I was uh, young and not sure if I wanted to do a PhD, so I sat around for two years working at a bookshop and then eventually decided I needed to apply to some PhD programs because I was really convinced the, this was the thing for me. Um, and so I ended up in a PhD program at uh, the University of Melbourne with the idea that I was going to do a study of a kind of comparative study, which doesn't really happen very much between Aotearoa and Australia. I was going to, in my mind, I was, I was thinking I was going to look at how um, different indigenous groups had used forms of conservation um, like national parks uh, in different ways sometimes to protect their interests because I had this great example in New Zealand of uh, Tufari Toa and Iwi in the, in the Northern Ireland uh, using um, the national park kind of framework as a way to protect their interests for a period of time. However, then I came to Australia and I was just, you know, blown away by uh, these um, kind of political controversies that were happening at the time around the development of indigenous land. There were kind of two things happening at once. Um, in the Kimberley region of 
Western Australia, right up in the north, there was um, a, an Indigenous group that was very uh, actively against the placing of a gas hub by the multinational um, Woodside Company. Uh, this is a place called James Price Point or Warmerdam. And then in uh, the other side of the north of Australia, Cape York Peninsula, there was uh, a number of different groups who were variously um, kind of for and against this piece of conservation legislation called the Wild Rivers Act. And it was uh, in the newspapers and it was everywhere and it seemed to have all these elements about it that um, intrigued me. And very early on, my supervisors were like, oh, you, you know, you have, to, you have to chase this. You're clearly very interested in it. It, 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 it has to do with all these things you're interested in. Um, belonging, how uh, we are going to negotiate the ownership of land, um, you know, in the aftermath of, of kind of the recognition of Indigenous land rights, um, what conservation means today, et cetera, et cetera. And so they really pressed upon me, you know, this is the way to go. Um, however, also to get back to your question, it was clear from the beginning that I was going to have to take quite a interdisciplinary approach to this, that um, the actors who were involved were so dispersed that it wasn't going to be possible to study them in one place, that you had conservationists um, in, in an urban city, uh, you had um, people working in an indigenous um, NGO uh, in a regional city, you had people living out um, in the remote areas of Cape York, uh, all these different dispersed actors. So there wasn't going to be a single field site, and I would have to take a kind of interdisciplinary approach to that. Fantastic. And and the book is wonderfully interdisciplinary. But before we, we get into that in more detail, I thought I might just ask you if you could tell us a little bit more about the Cape York Peninsula itself, especially for those listeners um, who might be might not be familiar with the place. Sure. So Cape York Peninsula is a kind of massive um Peninsula. It's not even really a peninsula. It's so huge. It's over 137 square kilometers, which, to give you an idea, is larger than Greece, larger than uh, the North Island of Aotearoa. Like it's a very, it's a very uh, massive place, and it's uh, got a you know a number of different kind of interesting histories. It's uh, about 10,000 years ago. Um, it was the last kind of part of Australia that was connected to. Uh, what is now Papua New Guinea. So it was the last land bridge between the Australian continent and, you know, the rest of the world. Um, and it's a place that uh, was the first place that was to be visited by European settlers. So um, the Dutch in the early 1600s arrived and it was the first place that Europeans made landfall on the Australian continent. Um, and they had a very unpleasant time of it. They tried to kidnap some people and, and, um, quite reasonably were um, turned away. Uh, and then throughout kind of the next few centuries, it was a place where European uh, colonizers tried to come but um, kind of failed to penetrate. So over time, uh, this is the argument, an argument I make in the book, it's kind of resisted the forms of um, Western capitalist settlement uh, just through its ecology, but also through its population, to the point where now, you know, this la massive landmass um, has a resident population of about 18,000 people, and that seasonally varies because it has a quite intense uh, monsoon. 
um, through kind of November to uh, April, which, uh, yeah, again, kind of has meant that also uh, a lot of its ecological values, as we might call them if we were ecological scientists, um, have remained, quote, unquote, intact. So it's an area that has very large pastoral stations, very large national parks, um, very large areas that have very few um, introduced or exotic species. Um, so therefore, it, it, it's been seen for quite a long time as, as a kind of ecological marvel. And so you've got these very large rivers that don't have dams on them. Um, as I say, very large savannas uh, that are relatively, quote unquote, intact. Yeah, so it's quite an extraordinary place by the sounds of it. And and we'll get back to this question of, of wilderness soon. But before we do that, the, the major f- focus of the book, or the book is kind of centred around this 2005 Wild Rivers Act, which you argue isn't just a law but an event and one that revealed and fundamentally altered the politics of environmentalism and indigeneity in Australia. But before we get to how exactly it did that, um, I wondered if you could explain a little bit about the act itself, kind of what it did and why it was and remains so controversial. So there's a number of ways of coming to this, but the the first one is the the boring policy one, which is that it was part of a suite of measures by um, a liberal (laughs) in the North American context, or what we call down here a Labour government, um, implementing a number of environmental uh, regulations. So throughout the early uh, 2000s, this Labour government came in after a, a long period of, of uh, conservative government and decided that it was going to change a number of different um, environmental regulations. Uh, the water uh, regulations were changed, land clearing regulations were changed. And then part of the suite was um, in the middle of an election campaign uh, the premier, so the head of the, the head of the state government, announced that he was going to protect uh, Queensland's "quote unquote" wild rivers, and what this meant effectively was, um, both practically, there would be no development on a set number of rivers that were deemed to um, have many of their ecological values intact, um, but also it was a it was a publicity or a branding campaign of of kind of underlining uh, Queensland's, uh, I guess, green credentials, its uh, touristic credentials. So something I didn't mention about the Cape is that a lot of uh, the eastern side of Cape York Peninsula um, is bracketed by the Great Barrier Reef, one of Australia's largest tourist attractions, you know, a multi-billion dollar tourist attraction. Um, And there has been and remains uh, a very big concern about forms of development in places like Cape York affecting uh, the Great Barrier Reef and therefore affecting the, you know, the economy and the ecology of that place. So in 2004, the, the Labor government comes out with this big policy and says, ah, we're going to protect these rivers for forever and there'll be no dams on them. And it was a great piece of, of branding. In the initial years, they had a lot of bipartisan support from uh, not only the conservative side of government, but also a number of indigenous um, figures in far north Queensland, or at least some of the most prominent ones, uh, said you know that they were they were for it um, because on the face of it, it didn't seem to do very much. You know, as, as I said, a piece of brand. But over the years that followed, 
um, people uh, became more and more, uh, I guess, trepidatious uh, about what was um, being, you know, what was being foreclosed by putting some restrictions on the development around these rivers, and what was being uh, foreclosed included not only things that might happen, but the ability of indigenous people with land rights to some of these places being able to negotiate with third parties about what might happen. So uh, through 2009 in particular, and then 2011, uh, again, there were kind of waves of um, uh, public lobbying and protesting by uh, particular Indigenous groups against the Act, and then as well, uh, public lobbying and protesting by some Indigenous groups who were for the Act. Um, so that's that's the long and short of it. Um, Later on, you know, it continues in a zombified form today, as I explain in the book, when um, a conservative government came into uh, the state government in 2012, they came in promising they were going to get rid of it. Oh, you know, this will be, you know, um, gone before you know it. However, it took them a number of years to figure out what might replace it. And when they did eventually replace it uh, very quietly, it was with... um, regulations that were almost exactly the same. So it exists even today. <laughs> In a zombified form, it exists under a different name, yes. It's a really interesting point you raise and, and kind of leads, I think, into my next question, which is one of the first issues that you raise in the book, and that's this question of of wildness. So what what does the wild in, in the wild rivers mean? Well, it's funny, uh, as I point out, the community consultation documents produced by the government. So when they went out to, um, you know, these remote places in Cape York and and tried to consult with people about the act, they actually have this amazing phrase, which is, um, we have to acknowledge wild for its duplicity of meaning. And so they acknowledge actually within these very bureaucratic documents that it has these double meanings. And what they mean by it in that case is on the one hand, wild as an uninhabited place, you know, a kind of sublime, um, unpeopled landscape that is kind of capital N nature um, in its fullness. And then on the other hand, wild is uh, for them a kind of clean, green branding, um, you know, uh, image. It's the image of nature not necessarily unpeopled, but, um, you know, healthy, uh, resplendent, um, yeah, small in nature, I suppose. And this is what they see uh, or thought they saw when they were, you know, putting together this act and going out and consulting with people. But as I point out in the book, you know, Wild has this very rich, deep and complicated history, um, kind of no matter where we look whether we're looking at, you know, Aristotle and um, early uh, Greek ideas of the wild as the thing outside the city that's defined as the thing outside the city or um, wildness, as I, as I mentioned, as a kind of chaotic energy or an ability to, um, in the form of the joker in a pack of cards, the wild, uh, the joker is wild because uh, he can move between sets uh, he doesn't um, have any ownership, you know, he doesn't belong anywhere. Um, he's a free-floating signifier. Um, and so all of this uh, this history, I thought, 
for me, really need to be brought to bear because it explains something about how wildness um, is both at this point overdetermined with value. Like uh, to this day, you know, you don't. You, all you need to do is go to a supermarket or, or turn on your TV, and you'll see things being um, pitched to you in the discourse of wildness. Whether it's you know to go to a particular um, beautiful place or it's to eat a particular uh, superfood you know wildness is there and it's alive um but it's kind of inexhaustible we can keep giving it meaning to suit ourselves and i think that for me was a way of getting into what was happening in the wild rivers act that people were using it um, whether they were on the side of the government or not people were still using this word and this um this discourse to try and attach value to uh, what they what they thought was most important. Yeah. Okay. And in the book, you you sort of situate this in a in a longer historical process of what you call placemaking or the the wilding of Cape York Peninsula. So, could you take us through a little bit of that history and that process of of placemaking? Yeah. So this is this was kind of where I ended up in thinking that these wild places are not wild at all. They're, they're people. They've been populated in the case of Cape York, Cape York Peninsula. They've been peopled for tens of thousands of years um, by, you know, thousands and thousands of people, generations of people who have shaped that place. And so, therefore, that kind of led me to think, well, how did we end up in a place of their, of nonetheless being able to think of these places as wild? And the the clues came for me in, in, in looking at the history of uh, white settlement in that place uh, and white um, exploration of that place as a process that had produced produced it as wild, that had, you know, um, as, as I put it, a, a process of wilding, that they had to kind of produce it through um, forms of textual production, like making maps, writing uh, novels about lost, you know, uh, the wild white men that get lost in this place over the 19th uh, century and become um, themselves native, or, or uh, to use their own phrasing, um, and to see, therefore, the, the wildness of this place as something that's produced through all these kinds of, um, I guess, discursive uh, production, whether that is... Um, yeah, early settlers, let's say, um, people like uh, Edmund Kennedy, who uh, was one of the first white settlers to try and explore the um, Eastern Cape, and it was a disastrous trip. Um, I can't remember the exact numbers. I think there were 14 people uh, went uh, on the trip. Two survived. Most of them died through starvation or um, getting lost. Um, however, one of the people who survived uh, uh, went on to write uh, their, their, their recollection of the trip that then got published multiple times. And in their recollection of the trip, they present Cape York as this place filled with treacherous um, Aboriginal people, uh, filled with treacherous environments, inhospitable. And, you know, this becomes exactly these kinds of texts became so crucial to um, people in other places uh, understanding this as as a as a hostile or wild, you know, um, uncivilized place, and we can track that as I do in the book uh, over the centuries. Whether that's 
um, early explorers like Kennedy or later settlers um, who tried to uh, bring cattle to that uh, to the north. Um, subsequent uh, um, police forces, um, development projects in the uh, throughout the 20th century that continue to, in various ways, write this place and, and, and thereby produce it as um, as wild in different ways, as as either um, full of uh, environmental values. To go back to the language I was using before, you know, um, exotic species and uh, I'd say exotic in the, you know, in terms of uh, marvelous species uh, of of birds and uh, huge numbers of crocodiles and and all these kinds of you know non-human actors that we value as 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 nature and uh, at the other hand undeveloped unpeopled um, you know uncivilized and therefore just waiting for capitalism and its forms of industrialization to turn up and and turn and transform it into something worthwhile. Okay, and and so from this kind of deep historical um, perspective on on wilding and, and placemaking, the book then turns to a, a I guess a kind of more concentrated survey of, of discourse specifically around the Wild Rivers Act. It surveys its media coverage specifically of the act. So could you explain how how this coverage? Um, unfolded and how it can help us to better understand broader trends in environmental politics in Australia at around this time? Yeah, so I um, I took a bit of a weird approach to this perhaps in that I took quite a media studies approach to the production of the Wild Rivers Act controversy. So obviously the controversy was unfolding in some of those sites that I was mentioning before. Um, whether that's in Cairns, you know, ma- the major city of uh, the very south of Cape York Peninsula or Brisbane, where a lot of the environmentalist NGOs were, or Canberra, the nation's capital, where um, uh, a, a number of people, traditional owners, uh, indigenous traditional owners from the Cape, as well as uh, uh, other indigenous interests, went to lobby politicians and in order to try and track that, I thought, well, what I could do is actually look at this controversy as it was produced in news media, as an example of um, the yeah the production of controversy, I suppose. So I decided to focus on um, the Australian print news media across across those different sites, the ones that were written, you know, in places like Cairns, the ones that were written in places like Brisbane, the forms of journalism that were being produced out of Canberra in order to kind of produce that as a scene or a site of, of contestation. And so I took quite a quantitative approach. I, I, I tried to, uh, I, using various databases, I accumulated all of the press coverage I could find, uh, put it in a database, and then I started crunching the numbers of, of trying to look at whose voice was getting the, the most prominence, who was getting quoted the most often, um, what kinds of language were they using, um, when did the coverage occur over time um, and which newspapers and outlets deemed it worthy of attention uh, and discovered through that uh, a number of things that were reasonably obvious to people involved in the controversy that there was a particular newspaper, The Australian, um, which is a, a Murdoch uh, News Limited newspaper that uh, has for a long time considered itself um, a major mover in the world of Indigenous affairs. And that the Australian had really dominated 
um, the terms of debate from very early on, had picked it up as an issue, decided that it was going to take a very strong stance and that would privilege certain voices, and that that was demonstrable and in, in, in therefore in the data that I started to produce. But also through that, um, how they uh, were constructing environmentalists at this time. So it was an interesting time in Australian politics more generally in terms of the rise of um, green politicians um, within the federal and state governments um, that in response to this, um, you know, different newspapers, including The Australian, took a very strong stance. And and, uh, I won't go into how bad it was, but effectively at different points said that green politicians were treasonous for, you know, standing in the way of Australia's mining economy, that they should be, I remember one columnist saying something like they should, uh, the, the, the head of the Green Party should be hung from uh, a lamppost. And so this was part of the context of the Australian taking um, a campaign against this piece of environmental legislation uh, and taking an interest in it. So I could demonstrate that through the chapter and, and, and through that how they were producing not only um, environmentalists as a particular kind of evil, as, as um, inappropriate to be involved in, the, in matters of regional and remote Australia, that they were inner-city liberal uh, greenies drinking lattes and they should stay out of it. So this kind of production of discursive production of the greenie and, on the other hand, the production of a certain kind of indigenous um, entity or agent who was a legitimate force. So the Australian really privileged um, a particular set of uh, indigenous actors who were against the Wild Rivers Act um, and and were variously for um, uh, forms of development as well as forms of um, welfare quarantining and and, um, policing of indigenous people. and they really worked against um, uh, drawing attention to the interests of particular pro-conservation uh, Indigenous traditional owners. Which is a really interesting dynamic, I think. And then in the following chapter, you, you build on this analysis um, by going kind of deeper into this controversy and examining in detail two particular histories that, that these stakeholders bring up again and again. Could you tell us a little bit about these these two histories and why those histories in particular were invoked? Yeah, so we have, um, I suppose, one that people may know a little bit about is uh, in Australia this history or idea of a green-black alliance. And what that is um, varies depending on who you talk to. Uh, my colleague Eve Vincent and I have an edited collection where we try and go into this um, a little bit more. But it's this idea uh, that, on the one hand, um, Indigenous people are fundamentally uh, conservationists and therefore have a fundamental uh, connection to environmentalists. So there's a kind of ideological pairing um, or a natural pairing, a natural alliance between those two groups, False as that is, that's that's you know a kind of common understanding, and what that's grounded in, on the other hand, is a historical uh, set of events where indigenous people and environmentalists have actually paired up in common cause. 
So um, I mentioned these in the book, and, and, and as I said in the edited collection, some of the most famous ones are, are kind of campaigns against um, uranium mining in the Northern Territory um, at a place called Jabaluka, um, uh, campaigns um, against uh, different forms of development elsewhere in Australia, and crucially in Cape York Peninsula in the 1990s, a campaign that was explicitly called a Green-Black Alliance by the Indigenous and non-Indigenous actors who were part of it. And what this campaign centred around in the 90s was um, the return to Indigenous ownership of a set of properties that had quite inexplicably been turned from cattle properties into freehold title um, in, the 19, in the late 80s and early 90s. So to, to give you a very short pricey, a conservative government said to a bunch of um, developers, uh, you can turn these cattle properties that have never been productive as cattle properties into freehold land that you can then develop. And one of the ideas was to have this uh, big resort in Cape York. Another was to have a space base, as they called it, which was uh, to have a rocket launching site and attached tourist resort. Um, uh, on one of these sites, which uh, also um, ran alongside the Great Barrier Reef. And Indigenous and non-Indigenous uh, people in the early 90s, these environmentalists attached to these large environmentalist NGOs, in particular traditional owners, paired up and uh, lobbied uh, national politicians, lobbied state politicians, um, went on various kind of speaking roadshows to try and um, stop these development projects and get the land returned to um, its traditional owners. And they were successful in that. Uh, so in the mid-90s, as I quote in the book, there are various statements by many of these people um, about this alliance and, and, and the pairing of these interests. Only for then in the Wild Rivers Act, many of those same people to now be at odds. Um, uh, some One of the most prominent uh, Indigenous actors, uh, a kind of public intellectual and advocate named Noel Pearson, you know, in the 90s had been part of the Screen Black Alliance and come the Wild Rivers Act uh, controversy uh, slightly over a decade later is very against conservation, is very pro um, the industrialization of uh, the Cape York Peninsula. And so in order to understand that and understand, as you're saying, how this history was being invoked, uh, you need to, you know, you need to track back into that. So the, the second history that I mentioned is that people brought up was this idea that the Wild Rivers Act was, um, quote unquote, worse than Bjarke Peterson. Now, who was Bjarke Peterson? Australians will know him very well. Uh, famously, Sir Joe. Uh, some people called him the hillbilly dictator. Uh, he was the premier of uh, Queensland through a very infamous period of, of Queensland politics. Now, it's infamous not only because um, in the late 1980s, uh, after serving for an incredibly long time, I think uh, over 19 years, um, the government fell in ignominy around uh, police corruption and what was pretty clearly uh, ministerial corruption, so high levels of government involved in corrupt activities. But it was also infamous as a period in which, under Bjarke Peterson's leadership, Queensland lagged behind the rest of Australia in terms of progressive Indigenous policy, that Bjarke Peterson was understood to have been um, 
somebody who stood in the way of uh, forms of self-determination that were being unfolded uh, elsewhere in Australia, particularly led by the federal government, whether that was in terms of what was called the homelands movement, people, uh, Aboriginal people moving back out into remote areas uh, of their traditional lands, or whether that was in terms of land ownership, um, you know, forms of title being passed to Aboriginal people to their traditional lands, uh, whether that was in forms of um, urban uh, Indigenous peoples' rights, that uh, it, was, it was seen to be a period of extreme discrimination against Aboriginal people, which now, you know, is wedged in, uh, understandably wedged in people's minds as um, something both within living memory and, you know, an extraordinarily oppressive time to live through. It was also a time in which uh, Indigenous people in Cape York really fought against these forms of oppression through um, forms of uh, litigation. So there were a number of kind of famous cases where uh, communities in Cape York fought against the Bjarke-Peterson government by taking up legal challenges, uh, whether that's to the Australian courts or the Privy Council um, in the UK. And being reasonably successful, being quite successful, I should say. Um, and so these ideas were, again, invoked during the Wild Rivers Act as a way of explaining how bad this thing was. How bad was this piece of conservation? Well, it was worse than Bjarke Peterson. And therefore, it was also uh, required the kind of response that Indigenous people had had to the Bjarke Peterson government in terms of activism, in terms of uh, litigation. And so that was the second kind of crucial history that I think people need to understand when trying to address the, what the Wild River Act controversy was. Absolutely. And I think, um, as you point out in the book, it raises some really interesting questions about who gets to speak, particularly for Indigenous people. Um, and you mentioned, just then you mentioned Noel Pearson, who's a who's a towering figure in Indigenous politics in Australia. And in the fourth chapter of the book, you, you address this role of, of Noel Pearson, a kind of ostensible leader or executive advocate, as you tell him, as you call him. And and this kind of split that he has um, with traditional or some traditional owners. So could you tell us a little bit about that split and this idea of kind of rearticulating indigeneity in that context? Yeah, there's this um, great phrase that I come back to uh, in the work of an Australian anthropologist, um, Francesca Merlin, where she says that in Australia, tradition is the coin of indigeneity. And what that means is what Merlin is talking about is that through the past few decades of the recognition of Indigenous people, particularly within land rights regimes in Australia, that the Australian courts and um, Australian political system, settler political system, have really fixated upon Indigenous tradition as the site for recognition, that in order to have land rights, you have to um, have your traditions intact. You know, this is all the, the language that you get um, uh, in these in these judgments, that, they, that Indigenous groups who... Um, you know, continue their traditional rights and customs. And what this means is those groups that um, have been least, uh, not affected, but least um, have, have had their, 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 their geographical location and their ability to speak their language and, and conduct 
um, their, their traditions as they see fit. Those who have had been impacted the least by that, those forms of disturbance are the most recognizable, are the most legitimate according to um, the laws. And what this is, as I point out, meant is that the sedimentation over time of an idea that um, traditional owners are the uh, singular kind of authorities on um, indigenous uh, issues. However, this has a lot of tension with people uh, like Pearson and a number of other people, but I use him as a good example, of people who don't speak from a place of traditional authority um, but have have a very large public profile because of their advocacy, because of their uh, prominence in policy debates, um, because of their their prominence in in other forms of um, representation, whether those are elected forms of representation or kind of forms of representation through um, business, that there's a tension there uh, between what I call the executive advocates, those who operate as as this kind of executives, and on the other hand, uh, traditional owners, people who speak from uh, a grounding in uh, the recognition of, of their tradition by, by, by the state um, and, their, and their, their, you know, their culture. So that tension, as I point out in the book, is often not really well understood um, when we have debates about um, Indigenous lands and Indigenous interests here in Australia. Uh, I think it's it's poorly understood, and because it's poorly understood, therefore um, people can get into all kinds of trouble but also can play all kinds of games uh, in that they can try and pick and choose their favourite Indigenous representative. The other problem is, as, a, as, as you point to, what do people like Pearson, what do executive advocates do when their views of what is uh, best, when their views of, of, of how we should, pres- of how, uh, you know, legislation or development projects should proceed clash with those of local people, clash with those of traditional owners. And this is something that the Wild Rivers Act, um, I think, really for the first time made uh, quite explicit, made unavoidable and therefore proved a, a, a good site for us to gain some insight into how these different authorities have kind of um, become positioned within Australian politics. Absolutely. And then this this kind of coalesces, I guess, around um, the multiple parliamentary inquiries that then happen, that then look at the Act in detail, which is the, the subject of Chapter 5. So could you tell us about these inquiries and and how this split and and all this coalescing kind of plays out in notes i think australian parliamentary democracy like a lot of parliamentary democracies in this world love nothing more than an inquiry an inquiry (laughs) is a great is a great way to make people feel that they've been heard it's a great way to delay any decision making it's a great way to take the heat out of um political controversies so uh you know there's this idea we get from um uh, science and technology studies of hot situations you know and the wild rivers act was very much a hot situation it was a controversial situation had a lot of heat in it and parliamentary inquiries are a great way to keep things cool 
to take the heat out of things. And the federal Labour government saw this. And so they sent the Wild Rivers Act to a total of uh, six parliamentary inquiries, only um, three of which uh, really had any substance uh, and only uh, four of which had any hearings. But the three that uh, I really focus on, you know, were very large events where uh, these these panels of Australian politicians, federal politicians, so nationwide politicians, went to different places in which the Wild Rivers Act was a controversy. You know, some of the places I was mentioning before, Brisbane, Cairns, uh, Arakoon, uh, uh, Weeper, these places in uh, in Cape York, uh, Chulungun, which is a homeland in Cape York, went to these places to hear what people thought of the Wild Rivers Act. And I use this partly because I went to some of these inquiries and found them really fascinating kind of moments, but also because it's kind of an ideal moment of narrative where people produced their narratives about what they felt the Wild Rivers Act meant and how it was uh, an imposition or um, or a benefit or, or something beneficial to their lives. Because I think... Um, something that we can get fixated upon in these kinds of studies looking at a controversy is that you can go and talk to people who are affected by something and discover that they don't have, um, you know, an exactly precise legal understanding of it. And some people might therefore dismiss, you know, dismiss people on that basis. Or you might go and talk to people and discover that their concern is not the Wild Rivers Act, but something else. And therefore, their concern isn't really, quote-unquote, the Wild Rivers Act. But by going to these inquiries, uh, it enabled me to see and therefore uh, it provided a kind of crucial and I think an important way for me to therefore re-narrate how people were narrating the future of Cape York, how they were narrating what their aspirations were for this place that, um, you know, clearly the state wanted to brand as wild, wanted to brand as, um, you know, a site of touristic adventure and potentially green business. Um, How did they, uh, whether they were Indigenous or non-Indigenous, how did they imagine the future of this place? And through doing that enabled uh, me to represent back to, uh, you know, in this book, uh, provided a very crucial way of understanding that some of these dreams were um, themselves uh, invoked ideas of the wild, that they they required you to think of kind of um, Cape York as a place that might be magically transformed by the powers of capital and innovation. Um, You know, we didn't quite have the language of disruption at that point, but, you know, I think if we had the Wild Rivers Act controversy today and these inquiries, people would be talking about disruption. Uh, but it was, you know, the magical, the, the kind of the magical promise of, of development, which so many people have written about, uh, is clearly like a powerful sociological, social imaginary in this place. Um, and whereas a number of other people who are uh, imagining the future of this place, you know, were really wrestling with an understanding, personal intimacy with kind of material limits of transformation that, uh, to go back to what I was saying at the very beginning of uh, our interview, that this place has historically resisted 
forms of capital exploitation through its environment, through its population, through its, its remoteness. And that remoteness, therefore, its, its distance from development is not a mistake. It's not an error that can be easily you know, ironed out. Um, and the inquiries were a place for kind of the interrogation of some of these wild dreams of development, as well as uh, the representation of some of the more pragmatic work that people are actually going about in order to try and produce, um, you know, livable futures in, in that place. Yeah, okay. And then I guess all these these different worlds, different futures and, and different imaginaries collide again in the Wenlock River area, which is the subject of the final chapter, Chapter 6, um, which opens with this really interesting question, which you say say is naive in the book, but I'm not sure it is. And that question is, <laughs> what what is a river? Um, so what is the Wenlock River? Well, it's so many things. Um, and as you say, I I, I, I I use the Wenlock again as a kind of I could have written about a number of different rivers, I guess, in Cape York, but it was it was a it was a perfect example of um, these values that different people had attached to it and their competing visions of what it was and should be. Um, So on the Winlock River, uh, we have not only the site for um, a lot of prospecting of um, bauxite, the key ingredient for producing aluminium or aluminium. Um, So these red pebbles, um, these red pebbles that you can refine and then smelt into aluminium and turn into uh, cans and all kinds of uh, brilliant things like the the shell of the MacBook that I'm I'm using today. So there's there's all been all this prospecting and dreaming about the future of that bauxite, you know, which is a, a material presence. It's a, it's a layer that's been formed over you know millennia. There, there's also on that same river and overlapping some of that bauxite is the Steve Irwin uh, Wildlife Reserve, a place that was um, you know has all this rich imagery of uh, the crocodile hunter, the khaki-clad uh, TV celebrity that uh, you know is known around the world. There is a, a a nature reserve there run by his family that is, was dedicated by the prime minister in his name. Um, that you know was potentially threatened by this bauxite mining. And then further up the river, we've got cattle properties um, which people uh, hope to turn into um, sustainable businesses. We've got homelands uh, where people are pursuing uh, people like um, David Cloudy, who I, I mention a lot in the book. He's a traditional owner, a, a Kanju traditional owner from uh, Chulungun, has these, uh, an idea of homelands development that is, you know, indigenous directed development on country of um, sustainable, small scale sustainable businesses. That all of these things are, are put into relation by the flow of the river. And, and I, I'm really persuaded by this, uh, this kind of optic and it became crucial for me for seeing the relationships between people were in some ways relationships um, that were put in place or, or, or manifested in the form of this, of this massive catchment of these, of these massive rivers, um, partly because water is so crucial to life in, in, a, in a place like that. So what that brought me to was... Um, a cosmopolitical view 
And I, I borrow this from uh, Isabel Stengers and a number of other people who have developed, the, developed this work in science and technology studies of, of trying to come at political problems um, in a different way by establishing a greater form of equity between people's projects of world making. And why I do this is because I think in the ways in which a number of the people that I've uh, I encountered with these kinds of controversies, particularly the Wild Rivers Act controversy, is that you end up choosing the worlding that you prefer. You know, the one that's legitimate is the um, indigenous on country uh, vision of um, you know connection to place and sustainable um, uh, development, or the one that I prefer is. Uh, the bauxite mining, because that is the one that will bring in money and development and jobs that will really transform this place and make it, um, you know, a better place to live for a number of different people. And taking the cosmopolitical proposal, which is, as, as Stinger says, a proposal, means that you therefore have to take seriously the a, a kind of equivalency between these and put them in relationship to each other without saying from the beginning which one should be preferred. Uh, and this is where I end up as, as a proposal for how we should come at these um, controversies in the future. Because to date, the, the preference, you know, to go back, the preference of um, various media outlets, the preference of various political parties has been to uh, pick the one that, you, uh, that, that most accords with your vision and say that that's the legitimate one. And that this can't be the way that we proceed in scholarship. We have to try and see all of these dreams, uh, all of these imaginings of place as grounded in, in legitimate desires and values. And, and thinking cosmopolitically is a way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's a, a wonderful insight um, for our times now as well, particularly. Um, but, Tim, I have taken up an awful lot of your time. Um, so I, I'll, I'd like to finish up this discussion with a, a kind of traditional question that we like to ask all of our guests, and that is, after this enormous and, and really important project, what are you working on next? Well, there's a funny connection, which is while I was doing field work in Cape York, um, I encountered, as one does in northern Australia, an abundance of fire that for me as a New Zealander was quite an unusual experience because in New Zealand we don't have a lot of, a lot of fire in the landscape. Uh, what North Americans call wildfire or what here in Australia uh, is called bushfire. Um, and it was just a fact of life in Northern Australia. Uh, and I found this really intriguing. Um, and so when I finished this, this project, I, I ended up, coincidentally in uh, a postdoc where I had an opportunity to study um, people who manage fire in different parts of Australia. And I ended up doing um, field work in Southwest Victoria, um, which is very uh, uh, wet part of the world, um, but that gets a huge amount of wind off the center of the continent. And so very like California dries out in the summer and becomes extremely flammable. Um, and, and very dangerous. And then the other place I, I did work was in um, in Darwin, 
uh, in Northern Australia and the Northern Territory, where fire is, uh, you know, an everyday presence. You know, approximately 40% of the savannas in, in Northern Australia burn every year. It's just a kind of fact of life. And I became intrigued by how people dealt with fire as, as sometimes an emergency, sometimes um, a benefactor, sometimes a, you know, um, a, 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 a thing that was, you know, fun, sometimes a threat. And um, have ended up studying, uh, I guess, uh, how the, these people who I call practitioners manage um, the uncertainties around their work. And so I'm, I'm very much in the fire world now and I'm doing uh, work on uh, uh, how people are using fire in the north for the creation of carbon credits, uh, as well as how people are using forms of modeling here in the south um, to try and predict the future of fire. So I guess I'm still very interested in um, the production of environmental futures and how people narrate and produce those futures through their narrations of them. Well, it, it sounds fantastic. And I think from, from water to fire is quite a nice transition. So <laughs> I need to hit all the elements eventually. <laughs> well, we look forward to hearing more about them on New Books Network soon. Um, thank you so much, Tim Neal, for being on the show today. It's been a pleasure. That was Dr. Tim Neal, Research Fellow at Deakin University's Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation in Melbourne, Australia, discussing his book, Wild Articulations, Environmentalism and Indigeneity in Northern Australia, which was published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2017. Thanks, as always, for joining us.